1: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Did you get a little misty-eyed when your kids went back to school this week? I did. But going back to school is not as easy as remembering to pack a lunch and a mask. Some households have immunocompromised family members. And this year, Connecticut schools do not have to offer virtual learning. So what decisions will these families have to make? It's the focus of one story in a series this week by Connecticut Public Radio's investigative unit, The Accountability Project. We'll talk about those stories today, and you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me now from Zoom is Walter Smith Randolph, investigative editor and lead reporter for The Accountability Project. Walter, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. It's great to be here.
1: So we, we know that your education series, you and your team, hit several important issues. But I wanted to start with an update on the resignation of UConn President Tom Katsaleas. Uh, you and your reporters, uh, covering that this summer. Uh, what's the update related to the relationship the former president had with the board?
2: Yeah, so we've been digging into that relationship by looking through emails and uh, uh, through FOIA requests and also talking to some folks that are on campus. But it just seems that the former uh, President Tom Casulos, it just seems like he he didn't um, go the way that the Board of Trustees was used to. It seems to be like there was a lot of backroom dealing and um, that there, you know, the meetings are kind of pre-orchestrated. And it seems like he didn't go along with that. And that's where the rift came in.
1: How unusual is it for the way the, the Board of Trustees operates at UConn versus other boor- boards, uh, Walter?
2: Um, it seems like a lot of universities do the same thing. So that way, you know, there isn't any disagreement that the public can see. Um, but again, it is supposed to be a public meeting. People are supposed to attend and they're also supposed to be some discussion about some of these agenda items. And that's just, that's not what's happening. That's happening behind closed doors. And when you get to a meeting and as you'll hear in our story, you'll see, you know, there's this multi-million dollar package and everyone disagrees on it. There's no discussion
1: so this wasn't the the way that uh, Tom Katsulayas was used to operating. And we know that he put in his resignation uh, just two years uh, after becoming president. So a lot of attention on that and this rift uh, between uh, him and um, some members of the board. And I'm thinking, you know, not good optics for a university that needs to recruit a new president. But meanwhile, there's an interim president. What can you tell us about him?
2: Yeah, as an interim president, um, I can tell you that he is familiar with University of Connecticut um, because he has been leading UConn Health, which includes the hospital, the dental and medical schools and the research facilities for about six years. But he does not have um, really an academic background. So that kind of, you know, raised raised the antenna of some folks on campus. But um, Jackie Raye Thomas was on campus when he was uh, driving around in a golf cart, helping students move in. Um, and, and no one really wants to talk about the past. They they kind of want to move forward and say, you know, we're looking towards the future.
1: Right. And that's Dr. Andrew Aguinobi. Uh, something that struck me in the story uh, when we think about uh, public employees, you know, now that he's interim president, he'll be making over $800,000. Walter, we're in the wrong business.
2: <laughs> yes, we've got to become university president. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there has been attention on the contract for former president Katsulayas as well. And so he, like the other president we have, Susan Herbst, able to now be faculty. Uh, when you and your team were talking with legislators, uh, do people see this, uh, the contract being too generous uh, when they become president, decide to leave, and then they can stay on and have a pretty sweet deal as faculty?
2: Yeah, you know, it's not unusual, you know, for a president to step down and to stay on campus. This just happened with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, their journalism school dean. She stepped down and she's going to remain on the faculty. But the difference here is that his contract said that if he resigned without cause, he would be entitled to post-presidency benefits, including a rate of pay equal to the highest base rate payable to a nine month faculty member. So basically highest paid faculty member. And, you know, we talked to some legislators and they were not happy about that. Um, You know, they call it an elevator clause and they said moving forward, they, they don't want that in the contracts.
1: And I've lived in Connecticut for a while now. And I feel like, you know, often we hear from some lawmakers, maybe not happy with, uh, you know, certain decisions that are being made at UConn, or maybe not happy with a particular uh, decision by the board. But is there any appetite for lawmakers to really get involved? The reason I'm asking is public money supports this university, our taxpayer dollars.
2: Yeah, it seems like it seems like this uh you know, again raised the antenna of many people. Um and so I think that they will be keeping a closer eye on what's happening. You know, the person that we talked to uh was uh Senator Slap and you know he is on the higher education committee, Senate chairman of the legislature's higher education committee. Um, you know, he said that there were, you know, Catsoulis had bigger plans for scholarships and tuition. Um Slap also used to work for the Yukon UConn Foundation, which is a school's fundraising arm. Um so he knows a lot about what's going on. So I just think this you know, puts Yukon kind of in the spotlight for people to be watching and to see how this all plays out.
1: So I'm guessing there there might be more to this Yukon story, Walter?
2: Oh, yes. We're still looking. We're still looking. We're still waiting for some emails to come in as well. So uh, Jackie R. Thomas will probably have a part three of this ongoing saga now.
1: This is where we live. With me on Zoom, Walter Smith Randolph, who's investigative editor and lead reporter for Connecticut Public Radio's investigative unit. That's the accountability project. I mentioned this series of education stories that you rolled out. And let's talk about we know that the state is mandating that teachers and staff have the COVID vaccine. Uh, Who did you speak with? And what did you learn from uh, school districts about how they're monitoring this?
2: Yeah, so um, Jackie Rabe-Thomas and our data reporter, Jim Hadadine, they went to Hartford-Stan Elementary School and spoke to a teacher named Victoria Shears um, she's a resource teacher, specializes in special education, and she was, uh, you know, moving back into, into school. Uh, we also have some sound in that story from Governor Ned Lamont. Um, and so we, we also talked to the Hartford superintendent about how this vaccine mandate is being rolled out. You know, when we started this story, we sent out a survey to all the superintendents across the state to say, you know, ask them, how many of your staff members are vaccinated? How are you keeping track of it? I um, mean, this was actually being before the governor issued the mandate.
1: So um, when you put out that survey, how many of these school leaders uh, actually knew uh, what their staff fax rate was?
2: So 45 uh, folks responded to the survey and only 10 of them said they knew for sure exactly how many um, of their faculty members, excuse me, their, their school workers were actually vaccinated.
1: 10 out of
2: 45. <laughs> said, yep, said they They knew with certainty mm-hmm. how many staff members had received the coronavirus vaccine. And of those who were sure, you know, the numbers all were around 75 to like 85 mm. uh,
1: percent. Do, do you and your team get the impression that, you know, school leaders, you know, are a little uh, like rushing around to fulfill this mandate. Uh, but I'm surprised that they didn't expect this to be coming, considering, you know, when we think about all the conversations about how to keep children safe, especially those that aren't able to get the vaccine right now, Walter.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It, it seems like they were running around trying to figure out, you know, because it, it creates another burden for some of these school districts, because then it becomes, well, who's going to check the vaccine mandate? You know, how are we going to check this? And then who do we report it to? And those are all things that um, that the state and the state education department, state health department, they're still trying to figure out because their deadline is until September 27th. Now, the teacher that we did speak to, you know, she says that it, it helps reassure her, makes her feel safer. But again, some of the some of these superintendents and some of the uh, administrators, you know, say that this creates an extra burden for them. And also, you know, it kind of came last minute. It came just a few weeks before school started.
1: Right. You mentioned Victoria Shears. Let's hear from her right now.
2: I feel like I can relax a little bit more, you know, mistakes happen, you know, a kid's mask might break and you just never know, you know, and I just feel like I have that extra layer of protection. So I definitely think it was the best decision for myself.
1: Mm. And you can hear uh, that she feels reassured. It sounds like she had a mask on when you were talking with her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, When we um, talk more about um, the decisions for parents and families, even staff, uh, to head back to school, uh, we know that um, some vaccines, um, even though uh, they're available, not everyone can take them. And you decided to focus on immunocompromised uh, family and the decisions they have to make because there is no mandate for schools to have uh, virtual learning. What did you find out?
2: Exactly. The school told, uh, the school, excuse me, the state told school districts, uh, you know, earlier this summer that they did not, they were not required to have a remote learning option. And so we talked to two families in a Fairfield school district where they have students in the school district, but they're, you know, for various reasons, their families are immunocompromised. And so with the school starting, they were trying to figure out if the Fairfield school district was going to offer some type of remote learning option. And the school district offered one student uh, who's going to be in the fifth grade five hours of tutoring a week and then another student who's going to be a junior they offered him 10 hours of tutoring a week uh, because he's special needs but most students they go to school for about 30 hours a week so the one mom um, put her kid into a national online academy but she you know she said she had to tap her son's college fund in order to pay for that. So the state does not have a statewide virtual academy like some other states do, like Massachusetts has one. There's about 30 other states across the, the country that have one. And so Connecticut is trying to come up with a plan for that, but they don't have to present the plan to the legislature until 2023.
1: So we've been in this pandemic for, what, 18 months, and the plan is not due until 2023. Uh, that's really interesting when we think about, you know, ways to serve all families in our state. You also spoke to a, a child about, uh, you know, their, uh, his mom, and I wanted to just play this clip because when we think about all the stuff on children's minds, uh, having to worry about their family, you know, shouldn't be something that should be front and center. But let's hear from Lane Mayville
2: if i went to an in-person school i would probably be very terrified because i could know that i know that my mom could get very sick and potentially die Mm.
1: and tell us about his mom
2: yeah uh, that's lane mayville he's 10 years old so his mom is marnie white she um has a compromised immune system so she did take the COVID 19 vaccine but she didn't develop antibodies and she actually, crazy enough, she actually is a PhD. She teaches epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. So she's been keeping an eye on the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, her immune system isn't where it should be. And so she's she's afraid that, and Lane as well, he's 10 years old. He's afraid, she's afraid that if he goes to school and brings something home, she could potentially, potentially die. So for her, it feels like she's choosing between her son's education and her health.
1: And then the, 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 her her... Her child has to think about, you know, not wanting to get, you know, get mom sick. That's a lot for a little kid to bear, Walter.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's 10 years old and he's thinking about his mom potentially dying. Um, You know, personal note, my mother passed away of cancer when I was 10 years old. So I know what that's like to have to deal with something like that. And that's something a child should never, ever have to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's robbing them of their innocence. Um, and so, the, you know, Marnie, uh, Dr. White, you know, she's she's very upset because she's been battling this for an entire Uh, summer, even at the beginning of this year, because she just knew that the vaccine was going to be available for children. um, And she's worried about what would happen if her son brought something home.
1: Mm. Uh, We've been focusing on immunocompromised families, but you've also looked at, you know, students with disabilities and how school districts uh, responded to them, making sure they had an education over this uh, last year. And uh, what did you find as we get into this, you know, what is it now, start of a third year where we're thinking about the pandemic and how to serve all, all kids, Walter?
2: Again, our all-star team, Jackie Rabe Thomas and data reporter Jim Hottedean, um looked at the numbers um, that they were able to get from the State Department of Education and they found that last school year, one out of every four students with autism were chronically absent, which was twice the rate compared to before the pandemic. Uh, meanwhile, one in three students with ADHD and over half of those with emotional disturbance missed excessive amounts of school.
1: Wow. One out of every four students absent. You spoke to a mother, Kimari Sotillo from New Haven. Her oldest son has autism and ADHD. She said it was hard to get her son to even agree to online learning. Let's hear from her.
2: To him, learning happens in person. Um, you know, some people thrive off being in a classroom, interacting in person, hands on, touching the materials, Um so he's just, he's struggled. he struggled. He has really struggled. And I, I feel like this year it's been a wash. He really didn't benefit.
1: So she was talking about the last school year. And so, what does that mean for the start of this year, Walter?
2: Well, for, for her, her situation is a, a little different because her son graduated high school during the pandemic. Um, so, but he's supposed to get some services to transition to his career. Um, so he did sign up to take courses on how to become a plumber, but he's still waiting to hear back if that, those courses will be in person. Um, but it, it, the data basically found that, you know. A lot of these students who have special needs are struggling with the remote learning. I mean, uh, assessment rates just came out, and we we saw that um, special education students who were learning remotely, they were the proficiency rate was about seven percent for English language arts and four percent for math. You look at the number for. Uh, Students who are in in normal and regular classes remote that's 25% and then for math and then for English language arts that was 40%. So you can see that there's a big, big difference. You
1: know we've heard from a variety of circumstances for families about the decisions of whether or not their child can go to school and if not, uh, waiting on on the state to come up with guidelines for you know a virtual academy like you mentioned other states uh, we see that uh, families uh, with children with disabilities severely impacted their learning uh, in this pandemic so uh, when we think about the complaints from families, I mean do you anticipate that there will be lawsuits uh, from families that um Say that the state is not supporting them as they should, as the law requires.
2: Well, you know, it depends because Jackie was also able to get some data from the complaints that parents make to the state. But there was a big drop off last school year. Last school year, the state saw a two-thirds drop in the number of complaints being filed, Um, and you know, the state says, "Oh, well, you can't, you know, make." you know, broad assumptions about this. But when you talk to people who, you know, work for Children's Advocacy Center and and places like that, they say that a lot of parents are just kind of fed up, you know, instead of filing a complaint or maybe filing a lawsuit, they are going to try to figure out the best way they know how to try to get their their kids some help. We spoke to a, a family that comes from a wealthy town in Connecticut. And instead of filing complaints, they just decided to spend thousands of dollars to get the education that, um, That their students need. So people right now, I I don't know if they're thinking about lawsuits and complaints. They're just thinking about, I need help now. And what do I, what can I do? When you also think of, you know, Dr. Marnie White, same thing she did, you know, she, she is complaining, of course, by going to school board meetings, but nothing that's, you know, she did file complaints and appeals with the the state board of education, but she gets to a point where she goes, well, school's starting and I need my kid to be in school. What do I do? I got to figure something out.
1: Right. Well, we hope to have the new education commissioner on where we live, and we'd love to ask her some of the questions related uh, to the series that you and your team have put out. Walter Smith Randolph, again, is investigative editor and lead reporter for Connecticut Public Radio's The Accountability Project. Walter, just remind our listeners, if they want to reach you, what's the best way to do so?
2: We have a new tips hotline. So that is tips at ctpublic.org. That's tips at ctpublic.org. So you can email us us your story idea and we can take a look at it.
1: Wonderful. Walter, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall Coming up, we talk about the pressing psychological and mental health needs of students. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare.
1: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. The start of the school year is an exciting time, but we can't forget the last 18 months have been anything but normal. So what sort of support will children need from their school districts? My next guest says there's a definite need because New findings suggest a doubling of rates of disorders such as anxiety and depression among children and adolescents during the pandemic. On Zoom right now is Dr. Sandy Chafulius, who's a Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Educational Psychology. She's co-director of the Collaboratory on School and Child Health at the University of Connecticut. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you, good morning. So when we think about uh, rates of diagnosed mental and developmental disorders, you know, what do we know about them before the pandemic and now that we've been in this 18 months, Sandy?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, this new study that, that we were just referencing um, talked about this doubling of rates, but I think it's first important before we get into those details to, to talk about the fact that the rates were high prior to the pandemic. So this doubling is extra concerning. Um, And by the doubling, uh, there was a brand new study just out last month in uh, JAMA Pediatrics, Uh, That basically combed all of the literature from uh, all the studies from January of 2020 to March of 2021 to look for keywords around adolescents and children, depression, anxiety, and COVID. And they found 29 studies. And so they kind of melded, they did a meta-analysis where they combined the results from across all those studies and found that our rates are about 25% for depression, and 20% for anxiety. So that's about one in every four to five children. And that's double what we saw generally.
1: As a parent, you know, that really uh, is concerning, right? Because you think about, you know, you try to do everything right for your child. And, you know, none of us were expecting this pandemic. We're all trying to do the best we can. And now that their kids are back in school, most of them, you know, it's, it's important to ask, you know, what are school districts and, and schools doing to support children who are dealing with anxiety and depression? Can you talk about some of the factors that lead to that, Sandy?
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, there's so many reasons. Right. And so those estimates that we just talked about are generally, you know, in general across the population. But they're going to be different based on different contexts. Right. So depending on what's happening in the community. Um, uh, what's happening all around us. So there are lots of reasons, Uh, economic stressors, physical challenges um, are certainly the the contributors that will help um, tell us what those prevalence rates will be. But then let's talk about the extended isolation, including school closures, as you just mentioned, and then the tremendous grief and loss that have been experienced. So it's not that there's one reason, there's a whole lot of reasons that are kind of all coming together into a perfect storm.
1: And when we think about children they are sponges right and so if they notice mom and dad are stressed um, if if the family is grieving the loss of a loved one the children they're feeling that as well um, but the way they respond to that it can be different than the way you and i do and so can you talk through you know when uh, children are dealing with anxiety and depression how depression how is it presenting
0: oh sure so it certainly looks different across different uh, across ages and stages as you just mentioned in adults you know, I, I don't know about you, but I've probably been more irritable or agitated over this past 18 months at certain times or more hypervigilant. Um, in younger kids, though, that might look more like prying or regression of behaviors, like thumb sucking, nightmares. And then in our adolescents or our older children, we might see withdrawal, um, substance use, again, irritability. Across all ages and stages, though, we're definitely seeing sleep disturbances.
1: Mm. And so if parents are noticing this in their child, uh, don't second guess, don't uh, say, you know, well, it's kids just being kids, this is normal. If they feel like their child needs help, it's okay to ask for help. How do they do that, Sandy?
0: Well, first of all, it's absolutely okay to ask for help. Um, I do think it's important first to acknowledge, though, that some of the things that we're seeing and all feeling is completely normal, given what's happening around us, right? Why would we expect everything to be exactly the same as before? the concern or the, the issue that parents need to be paying attention to in teachers and schools as well is, is when children aren't able then to do the things that we're expecting that they would be able to do. So when it becomes something that they're not able to, to get up in the morning and start their routine the way that we're um, expecting, that's when we start to say we worry. But anytime you have a question, you certainly should be reaching out to, um, now that schools are back, certainly um, understanding who you're, um, the support staff are in your school, whether that's starting with your teacher who can then connect you with the school psychologist or a social worker or a counselor, um, or your pediatrician if you're in a community-based setting or any other community agency that you might be able to connect with.
1: You're hearing Dr. Sandy Chafoulias, who is a distinguished professor of educational psychology and co-director of the Collaboratory on School and Child Health at the University of Connecticut, as we talk about uh, increasing rates of anxiety and depression uh, and other disorders in children. Uh, They may be going back to school, but what are the support uh, services out there for them within their school? You can join us, too, if you have a question, if there's a program that you notice uh, your child's school um, has been using to help with these socioemotional needs, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So Sandy, you and your colleagues are training uh, future school psychologists. And when we think about uh, reaching out to a teacher who might be able to refer a child to a school psychologist, uh, not all schools um, have that staffing up to the levels that, um, that will be able to respond to these increased needs. Can you talk about uh, what you found out?
0: So sure. Again, this is a, an issue that's been around as long as I've been a practitioner, which is a long time, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, the, the shortages or the recommended ratios from our, our national organizations for school psychologists and pretty similar for school counselors as well would suggest that we don't have the numbers in schools. So. Employed by schools that we would that that are recommended. NASP, the National Association of School Psychologists, for example, recommends one school psychologist for every 500 students. But the estimates suggest it's really more like nationally about one to um, every 1,200 students. So if you think about that, it's like uh, instead of having 25 students in your class, it would be like having 60.
1: Wow. <laughs> So, talk through more when we think about uh, the the staff that's needed in schools. Oh, who are we talking about? So it's psychologists, social workers, counselors. Yeah, we definitely
0: need um the the staff in schools, and we also need the community connections to build our partnerships uh, to within our local context and our agencies because we can use schools as the as the primary setting for accessing or kind of being like the coordination hub. So if a school can't provide something that a child needs, maybe it's more intensive than what a school can offer, um, the sh- school should be the place to help identify that those needs and then connect to what's needed.
1: We've heard a lot in this last year and a half uh, concerns about learning loss. But when I think about young children and the social skills that they learn uh, and and uh, how this has all impacted them developmentally. Can you you talk about that and how uh, school staff can respond uh, when they see a child that might be a certain age, but but maybe is lagging in a particular uh, developmental skill that in normal times uh, might have been there?
0: Sure, absolutely. So there are lots of articles that came out and lots of news stories this summer that talked about academic learning loss. And I think they put the estimate somewhere around four to five months of loss. Um, and every time I would read one of those articles, I would get like angry on the inside and say, okay, well, that also means that it's the same for social skills, right? So if we expect four to five months of loss um, in academics, we also need to expect that for the social, emotional, and behavioral skills that we're expecting our children to have. So there's there's kind of two issues that are in, in around that are involved in this gap in social skills. One is this opportunity, we need these opportunities to teach skills that were never there to begin with. So if you think about it, all of those kindergartners that are coming into first grade right now, should we expect that they that they have all of the social skills of a first grader when they haven't had the opportunity to do things like uh, take turns pat t- uh, share uh, t- um, p- you know pass things nicely, um, organize things you know when you come in put your f- your shoes here, your red folder here, all of those things. So we do need to expect that just like on the academic side that we provide the time to learn, particularly with our youngest children. Mm-hmm. And then for all of us even us as grown-ups heading back into the workplace um, make sure that we have the opportunity to practice because we're a little rusty, right? It's like getting back on a bike after 20 years, maybe. I don't know when the last time you rode a bike was, Um, but it's the, so it's two things. One is the opportunity to teach it, the things, the skills that were never learned. And then two, to give the time to, to practice the skills that we had.
1: So we've been talking about uh, learning, uh, not just a learning loss, but thinking about the developmental skills. But how talk about the connection between that and when we think about a child's mental health or physical health, Sandy?
0: Yeah, so it it's really interesting. We had done we were working in a, a school at the, toward the end of June, and we were doing some pilot projects around building kind of the, these uh, skills and so, uh, some social skills, but around building positive emotion skills. And we um, just on off chance embedded some arts activities into those um, um, programs. And we had gotten a note back from the teacher, first grade teacher at the end. And and she had exclaimed at how much, how important it was that we did both of those things because she had realized how far behind some of her kids were with basic things like think of uh, cutting and gluing and coloring. So I don't know why it, it, it surprised me at the time because I, I kind of know this, but I, I said to myself, "Oh my gosh, we really we can't you can't disconnect anything. Everything is interconnected. Um, it's the same reason why we're seeing uh, mental health challenges, right? It's not because we have just mental health challenges. It's because we're experiencing physical challenges, environmental challenges, financial challenges. So the idea that learning and health are are connected are interconnected." and intertwined is something that we're certainly understanding now more to a degree than we ever have before.
1: I'd love to hear from some parents uh, who uh, may be making certain observations with their children, and now that they may be in school, you know, how do you see your uh, school or teacher responding to those needs? The number eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at uh, Where We Live. Uh, you, we learned that uh, obviously uh, mental health professionals, counselors, social workers, there aren't enough uh, for us. Uh, children uh, in schools across our country. But when when we hear that, you know, what um, resources or support do teachers have that they can be prepared for the school year uh, to respond to those needs that they're seeing, Sandy?
0: Sure. So that's, I think, the million dollar question and, and the perfect question, because although I certainly advocate that we need to have more school mental health professionals in schools, I also think that what we need to do is be engaging in a prevention focus. We've um, talked in the past about this thing called behavioral vaccines. So just like we all go out, are going out or we all should be going out to get our um, physical vaccines, um, there's an idea behind the idea of the behavioral vaccines. So the small things that we do for everyone, the whole population, the general population that we all need right now. And really simple things like um, a warm greeting or a written note, like, hey, great job on the show today, right? Or for kids especially, and adults, aerobic playtime, so that recess time. Um, Or it could be something as simple as intentional breathing exercises. So these really small things that everybody should be doing and engaging in that don't necessarily require a school mental health professional. They maybe can help you learn how to do those things or do those things, but everyone in the school, from the bus driver, uh, custodians, teachers, can help um, build this foundation where we have a really strong core
1: uh, the Niag School of Education. Uh, a lot of uh, teachers uh, coming out of these programs in Connecticut schools, also uh, social workers and uh, school psychologists. And I'm wondering when we look at how Connecticut schools uh, fare, uh, we hear about shortages nationwide, but in terms of um, you know how Connecticut has responded to this, you know, what have you heard from your colleagues about the, what what schools in our state are doing to respond to these needs, Sandy? Well,
0: they're doing a lot. So first, I want to give a big shout out to to all our school staff that are out there right now, because it has been, as you had started in your beginning of your show, a very challenging 18 months. And the summer is no exception for our educators who have been um, trying to pivot as as the routines continue to change, right, to make sure that we're uh, ready to, to be as supportive as we're able to be with the resources that we have. So, you know, everyone has been working on social emotional uh, programs, programming, what that's going to look like. Uh, some schools have been creative in being able to give their principals autonomy to say, take that first week and do with it what is best for your, co- for, for what's best for your school and the, and the kids that are in your school. Um, a lot of it is focused on reconnection, um, play, reengaging in um uh, you know what would be a, a a normal school experience
1: i like that that idea that you know thinking about how to structure class time and and giving teachers more flexibility just to connect with their students and not worried about uh the next uh, following the certain curriculum or getting them to their next class sandy
0: Yeah, how about some fun, right? We probably could have used fun before the the pandemic too, but thinking about fun. And it could be something as simple as, uh, you know, um, I see this uh, uh, recommended a lot is like a two by 10 strategy. So it's uh, taking two minutes for 10 days to focus on one or two or three students and really connect and build that relationship with them and then you rotate through your class till you've got to, through everybody but you just, you focus on a targeted few at a time to really solidify that um relationship and there's no like predetermined set of questions it's just like hanging out and talking and and connecting learning about what's going on in their lives
1: i feel like there's always um it seems like the catalyst for these kinds of uh, conversations about taking time and and to connect and to ask uh, people you know, how they're feeling. It's always related to catastrophic events, right? So my producer, Tess, uh, she remembers after the Boston bombings, uh, her teachers spent time in the classroom checking on them, talking about what they've seen and what they've all been through. But it is interesting when we think about this pandemic. It's been traumatic for many Many people, um, but you know, lessons that we can learn, Sandy, as we uh, you know, think about getting out of this pandemic and how to be more responsive, just in general.
0: Yeah, um, I think you just hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, we need to be doing this with outside of the pandemic for, for in perpetuity. I like to think that maybe the pandemic has has highlighted our attention to the need to do these and that we sh- should be able to sustain them over time. Um, everyone needs to work on adaptive coping, right? Positive coping things. And we know that it's very important to, that we um, build our tolerance for uncertainty because that's kind of what life is, pandemic or no pandemic. Um, and so, strat, you know, really, sim- again, simple strategies like making sure we use humor, um, learning how to accept, seeking supports so when we need them are, are really important.
1: We talked about uh, there being uh, shortages uh, to uh, have additional mental health staff in schools. But the good news is there's all this money, this federal money from the American Rescue Plan in towns, uh, in communities. Uh, do we know if, if, if uh, schools are able to use this money to help uh, boost staff to address these uh, mental health needs of children, Sandy? Uh, that would be a yes and a yes, I think. <laughs> so I think <laughs> the
0: most recent plan that I had read that had been uh, approved was New Hampshire's actually. And so they um, there are three bullets and, and we can talk about Connecticut in a second, but there are three bullets were expanding after school programs. Two was supporting student and educator, social, emotional, and mental health needs. And third was supporting educators. So that kind of hits everything that you've just talked about. Connecticut is also, uh, was approved uh, prior to this time, but um, solutions were, were very similar in terms of, you know, addressing learning loss that's expected. But the one, a second major bullet is student social, emotional and mental supports, building infrastructure, building community connections, boosting engagement, strengthening family and community partnerships. Um, those are good things.
1: Something I noticed uh, my children's schools trying uh, last year is they had these online uh, programs, uh, uh, socio-emotional learning programs, but I didn't see either of my children really connecting to this. And so I'm wondering, you know, what does the, the data show in terms of do these programs help students, Sandy?
0: They certainly help, but they have to be implemented well. So it's not that you can just take a program off a shelf and say, hey, put it in X school and it'll work for X, Y, and Z. We need to understand what the need is in that uh, school or community context and then do a good match. And it doesn't have to be, again, a fancy program. It can be really simple strategies like we just talked about with this like two by 10 connection. Um, Maybe you're Your children would have liked to have been in a private Zoom room and have a chance to connect more so, um, and that would have been what they would have benefited most from.
1: You're hearing Dr. Sandy Chafulius, who is a distinguished professor of educational psychology and co-director of the Collaboratory on School and Child Health at the University of Connecticut, as we're talking about how schools uh, should respond to children and their mental health needs. You can join us, too. We're going to take a short break. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, the U.S. military mission in Afghanistan ended August 31st. The State Department says 123,000 people were evacuated, but not everyone got out. On the next where we live, we hear from Connecticut residents who have relatives still waiting to be evacuated. And we talk with local refugee resettlement agencies about their efforts to extricate and settle Afghan refugees in Connecticut. And do you have questions about how you can help? We hope you join us tomorrow. Now, today we're talking about how schools can respond to the mental health needs of children now that the school year is underway. My guest today on Zoom, Dr. Sandy Chafoulias, Distinguished Professor of Educational Psychology and Co-Director of the Collaboratory on School and Child Health at the University of Connecticut. We were talking about how uh, when children are different ages, um, how these uh, stresses uh, manifest differently in them. And so if we're talking about a, a child who's five versus a high schooler, what are some best strategies to, to check in with them and talk with them about how they're feeling, Sandy?
0: Oh, well, that's a good question. So um, I would say ask the teachers, right? So in, in with the younger kids, I'm on the floor, right? Sit on the floor. Engage in uh, with art activities while we're while we're having conversations. With our older kids, You know, it has to be maybe a little bit more casual where you're shoulder to shoulder walking down the hall or or chatting rather than directly saying, Hey, what's wrong with you or what's going on? That's not not the best way to engage. So it it really depends on the you know, age and stage and also the individual child.
1: It's interesting. uh, my son will be eleven and I already noticed that he starts to not be as open about talking about things as he was when he was five and and six. And so, what are some yeah. what are some guidelines for parents who have adolescents? They notice their kids are clamming up. They don't really want to talk to mom and dad.
0: <laughs> sure. So I would say that of all my uh, this is in my own personal experience with my three kids as well, and and my friends. We talk about the idea of uh, of liking our turn in in the drive to different activities. You know, in the carpool or even just having conversations because it, it, it makes it a more relaxed um, space rather than sitting down at the kitchen table to again, have a serious conversation, just kind of um, making it more casual. Let's, let's go for a walk. And then we chat on the walk or um, text. I don't know. You're, you're about to enter the the age of texting probably more than talking at some point. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's again, just not being confrontational I think is the big they get the big, big spacer, particularly as they get into teens non-judgmental, really just being calm and saying, "I'm here, I'm listening, and boy, that really stinks. You know, what's happening right now? And what are you thinking about this?
1: That's good advice. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, When we were talking earlier about uh, there being a shortage of mental health professionals in schools, uh, you and your colleagues have also found that there aren't enough culturally and linguistically diverse school psychologists. And so, can you talk about the need there and how to address that? What's happening in other states? Is Connecticut being responsive?
0: Sure, absolutely. So the same trends that we see in our school mental health staff are the same things that we see in our educator staff. So, um, you know, there's a, a big push right now to make to make sure that we're using a multi-pronged strategy. So everything from recruitment of um, talented people into teacher ed and school psychology programs to um, uh starting in high school even, because I don't know about you, but I didn't really know what a school psychologist was until I was getting ready to apply to grad school. So getting out there and telling people what these jobs are and how cool they can be to work in um, is is an important um, pipeline uh, kind of programming thing, um, space. And then again, making sure that in our community context that we are uh, connecting with uh our community community community-based providers we shouldn't expect that schools can do everything on their own but we can tap into our community and our community members to to help in the delivery of what we think are these are these best practices as we move forward
1: what about um, encouraging children to ask for help Um, if they're maybe being sent or recommended to see the school psychologist or a therapist you know that can be scary they might think they're in trouble and and so what are some good approaches to have children be comfortable talking with an adult about their feelings?
0: That's a good question. And I think, again, that's one that that maybe might be getting a little bit easier for us as, as, as our society is progressing um, as a result of COVID. And then even something as simple as the Olympics that we see this summer and the conversations about being open to talk about mental health are much different than what we saw maybe just even just a few years ago. So the first thing is to make sure that you're, you're um, in your school, that, that, that students know who they are and where they are. So when back in my practitioner days, we would spend the first week going around to classrooms and just chatting with kids and 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 talking to them about who I am and where I am and what I do. Um so that's a first really important step. And again, um the second part was if you do see something that's of concerning, not to make it seem alarmist, like you can, you know, say you're having a conversation with the child and you're concerned about something that you're hearing, you don't like Freak out about it. You say, "Hey, you know, that's really um, that's really um, interesting. I'm glad that you shared that with me. Uh, Let's talk about that a little bit more. Um, Would you mind if I connect you and we go talk to someone else about that? And hey, I'd I'd like to walk you down to that person's office. Let's go together, if if that's what's needed." Mm
1: When uh, parents are used to uh, taking temperatures these days and you're not supposed to send your child to school if they're they're sick with fever or some other illness, Uh, what would you say to parents in terms of rethinking, you know, taking a sick day because they know their child might be struggling? They need a mental health break. Uh, How would you advise uh, parents to think about a sick day for this? Well, I think again,
0: as we talked a little bit earlier, I think everything is connected together. So, why we would separate "sick" as, uh, as meaning only physical health or, or and wellness, um, we should also assume that that's connected to uh, mental health and social and how we're socially, emotionally, and behaviorally feeling. So, in other words, I w- uh, would be a supporter of saying that those those that sick time or those sick days, uh, or maybe we should call it something other than sick days, right? Maybe wellness wellness days could apply across all our domains of well-being. right. What we need to be careful of though is just to make sure that it's not being used to reinforce what we would call escape behaviors or the opportunity not to re-engage. So let's say that you had somebody uh, a child that was really socially anxious about going to school. if we keep letting them not go to school versus like putting in baby steps or a plan to, to get us ready to get back into school, then we could create a bigger problem.
1: Sandy we just have a couple of minutes left but um, you know all this talk about um, being responsive to mental health needs the stakes are high because we're seeing uh, you know suicide rates, uh, especially for children it's really scary and if you could talk about that for us.
0: yeah, it is very scary and, and again what I would reinforce here is that we do need to be worried about the things that we're seeing at the more intensive mental health needs but we can't forget or we can't neglect the foundation of wellness. So um you know mental health and well-being it's not just the absence of disease so we're not just trying to decrease anxiety and depression and suicide rates. What we actually want is a mentally well society, right? We want our kids and our and ourselves to be to be well. And we do that by having a really strong foundation of um I talk about is the four P's in the, in the work that I do in, uh, in terms of making sure that our physical setup is there. So making sure we have nutritious food, good sleep habits, all the, all the, even access to technology. Then we talk about it as having predictable routines. So we have control and we have certainty when we have predictable routines. And then we have positive relationships, which we already talked about. And then pleasure, which we also talked about is, putting fun into your day. So if we put those four P's as our foundation, we can um, reduce the intensity of the the severe, the severe the severe mental health problems, but we also make ourselves as a society well. We have well-being.
1: Well Sandy, this has been a really important conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you you have been hearing Dr. Sandy Chofoulias, a distinguished professor of educational psychology and co-director of the Collaboratory on School and Child Health at the University of Connecticut. I'm Lucy Nalpith-Anchel. Test Terrible produced today's show. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.